Night Studio, a memoir of Philip Gustin by Musa Mayer. This is chapter 12, the last chapter of the book. It's called Night Studio, like a title track of a song. The title is Night Studio. It It starts with a quote from Sylvia Plath, from her The Colossus. I shall never get you put together entirely, pieced and glued, properly jointed, by Sylvia Plath. The studio at night, everything in place now, removed for safekeeping or put away, paintings rest in air-conditioned berths in the storage room next door, the drawings in the long drawers of the two gray steel cabinets, the masses of photos filed by year in glassine envelopes, the 50 piles of catalogs and magazines and books have all been sorted through and reside in a tall wooden file of their own. When my father died, the walls of the storage room Beside the studio were lined with big paintings. When I visited him those last years, this big cinder block space with its tiny high windows seemed cave-like to me. Like some underground chamber filled with treasure. You walked in, he turned on the lights, and there they were. You were completely surrounded by amazing images, by legs and shoes and ladders, by high red tides and drowning heads. Philip knew where each one was, could bring it to the surface with a minimum of moves. He and Ed Blatter, his helper, would shift the paintings and their cardboard backings with a layered, deliberate certainty. It was like a dance, this uncovering, a ponderous ritual dance. I have to say, I know where my stuff is too. And it's always a constant shifting. (laughs) Seven years later, this room has changed beyond recognition. Of necessity, the storage space has become a species of vault. A smoothly humming expanse given over, not to the excitement of planning an exhibition, nor to the sheer surprise of seeing the big pictures for the first time, but to the strict needs of conservation. No images greet the eye on entering. There is only a stark, almost clinical whiteness. The paintings are stored in carpeted racks now, their edges labeled like spines of books. The air is maintained at the precise, correct temperature and humidity. The studio next door seems empty with its walls bare, but otherwise it looks much the same. There are still the big windows facing north, their lowest panes whitened for privacy. My father's roll-top oak desk is where it was when he was alive, his drawing table, the clunky red vinyl desk chair, the swiveling oak stool. In the middle of the room, the painting wall still stands, but it is a partition no longer needed, a baffle for the silence. A few jars of pencils and brushes remain beside his drawing table, but on the 
On the shelves, the Higgins black ink has dried in its bottles, and the rolls of masking tape are brittle. Certain evidence remains. A pattern of pushpins in the homosote wall beside the desk. The placement of tools, a solemn row of flat irons, and the absurd superfluity of an entire cupboard full of Bocur and Grumbacher cadmium red medium hoarded like pints of blood against some feared and imagined shortage still in readiness for the next impassioned run of work in the center of it all his clawfoot chair a stiff leather throne of a seat with its perennial companion beside it an ashtray on a brass pedestal. I can still summon up a picture of him sitting there smoking and looking at his work. But even, sorry, but after seven years, it is only a memory and not a haunting presence. It is in summer that I see him wearing a Warren Brooks Brothers short sleeve shirt, something blue and striped with the shirt tails hanging out over floppy khaki colored shorts His long, pale legs are crossed, big, misshapen feet, sockless, in in unlaced, dirty white sneakers, and it is late, sometime after two or three in the morning. Overhead, the fluorescent lights hum. From time to time, my father sighs deeply. Otherwise, he is silent, starting, sorry, otherwise, he is silent, staring through half-closed lids, one hand cups his one hand cups an elbow one hand cups an elbow his chin rests on the heel of the other he only moves to take deep drags from his cigarette making that familiar two finger salute of his then spitting a loose shred of tobacco from his lower lip or squinting against a wisp of smoke He stares at his painting, the one he's working on, as if it is his adversary. His eyes set deep and pouched, or pooched. His eyes set deep and pooched look almost black, opaque in the flat, shadowless light. Pushing himself up with difficulty from the chair, he sighs again stubs out one cigarette, lights another, and shambles over to the wall where the canvas is stapled. There's something about his long, surprisingly thin legs and bulky torso that brings to mind some anxious, stalking bird, a crane or heron, one of those gawky, elegant creatures that soar so majestically. He approaches his painting, squints, leans into it, disturbs an area with his thumb, walks away and turns on it again, as if to catch it unaware. He is not finished with this one. No, I can see he is I can see he is deep in this picture still, worrying it, worrying it, arguing with it. This looking at this looking is only an intermission, a brief ceasefire. The picture has not yet claimed him fully. And so the battle resumes, the devotional act for all the excited talk far into the night, for all his wise words on the creative act, for all his wit, his passion, and despair, it is this solitary dialogue, 
most intimate of conversations that forms my, mo- my father's essence. The paintings testify. They are the evidence. He is the painter in his studio alone. One has no business to have any children, St. George placidly declared. I mean, of course, if one wants to do anything good. So says the master in Henry James's The Lesson of the Master. He has everything he tells his disciple Paul Overt. Paul Overt, but the great thing. And what is the great thing? The young Overt inquires. The sense of having done the best, the master replied. The sense which is the real life of the artist, and the absence of which is his death, of having drawn from his intellectual instrument the finest music that nature had hidden in it, of of having played it as it should be played. He either does that or he doesn't, and if he doesn't, he isn't worth speaking of. A full life for an artist is treacherous with compromise, There is always some precarious division of attention and energies to be made. Yet in this story, the master himself is married. He's apparently renounced the austerity of art in favor of life's entanglements. For him, at least, as as for my father, the rewards of marriage far outweighed the risk of mediocrity. And what of his family, the supporting cast? Theirs are the voices we never hear. We never hear what it's like for them. The patient wives of artists, too modest or too shy. These women are hidden away somewhere, busy feathering a safe nook, fending off invaders, trying to offer their brilliant mates some semblance of what Elizabeth Hardwick calls the wholeness of the bourgeois whose health they must have in order to work, but whose happiness they must surrender because of their violent consciousness and vulnerability. Worthwhile as this enterprise might be, I suspect there would be few applicants today for my mother's position. For that matter, few artists seem to possess my father's passion and single-mindedness. Today's cooler attitudes, not only in art, are more pragmatic, less idealized. And women rightfully are eager for their own rewards. Certainly, the next generation, my own, wanted things to be different. Younger artists looked at the lives of the artists they admired. The abstract expressionists who rose to prominence in the 50s those hard-drinking, work-obsessed painters who died young. They looked at the embittered wives and children of their ancestors and decided this was not for them. Or so, or so an East Village painter of my generation told me recently. He and his friends wanted to stay closer to their families, he said, to try to be less self-destructive. Whether they were successful or even representative of their generation, I do not know. Certainly I. Certainly I, who tried so hard to emulate my mother, have long ago given up the fantasy of being the artist's wife, or the artist in the sense that my father was. My own story, I suppose, is one of bending 
my parents' extremes to my more moderate uses. Strange, then, that in looking at them now, it is still their, ex their extremes that move me, not to anger as they once did, but to, rest, to respect in a bit of sadness at the cost. But I can only admire the full tilt intensity of my father's pursuit, the constancy and sweetness of my mother's devotion. For the stern equation of such sacrifice to prove itself, the gift in question must be very great. The good must be more than merely good. If it is not, all is unbalanced. Whole lives seem wasted and the loss is very bitter. Without true greatness to lend an imperative, an artist can turn into a foolish, brutal tyrant, and his wife is in danger of becoming, in Cynthia Ozick's words, a docile captive, an accomplice, an it, a woman who has chosen the comforts of dependency, the absence of decisions and responsibility, the avoidance of risk, the shutting out of the gigantic toil of art. For everything depends on the redemptive power of art. How else can I explain that feeling of being caught up, all three of us, my mother, my father, and I, in something larger, something so very necessary? It feels like something I've known all my life, but only now can find the, way, the means to say. I feel embarrassed writing these words, as if I were confessing some sort of religious fervor to skeptics. But for me, growing up with my parents, the underlying reality was always this, that we lived with a great and irresistible force that my father claimed and yet didn't claim as his own, a force that moved through him, that tormented and exalted him and all of us. What a romantic notion, this mysterious force, this noble suffering. How can I dignify my father's domination? my mother's submiss submissiveness how can I who know who sorry how can I who know how very human my father was add to the pompous myth-making that follows an artist's death but what shall I do this is how I lived my life and fashioned meaning from it he was a drastic artist Philip Roth says about my father Every time he wrote the rules to the game, he wanted to break the rules. There was such strain, you know? At the end of a BBC film on Malamud, the camera is perched on a ladder, looking down on him, writing at his desk. It gave me the chills. I said to Claire, so, that's what it looks like. It's horrible. There's no point to that. There was this man, alone, trying to break his own rules to get further to get further and to get to it to do it to show what couldn't be seen he stops then he turns to look at me do you think he could do it again he asks of course I say without thinking having to think he would have said what's the alternative I feel there's none I feel there's none for me either the sense of resignation in his voice is sobering. We are silent for a moment. 
It's not a matter of romantic agony, Philip Roth says, but just a form of professional deformity. Goth wrote, the only way in which we have in which the only way in which we come can come to terms with the great superiority of another person is love. This sounds fine, of course, transcendent even, but how do I find such love? How do I live with this man so large on my walls and in my heart? To get on with my own life, shall I diminish his? Shall I build a figure of pity from my father's flaws, create him in my mind as some lesser being, full of anxieties, excesses, and grudges? Is that the remedy? Sometimes I admit I do look for ways to shrink the monument, this larger-than-life creation I and others have made of Philip Guston. To someone more my size and therefore more manageable. And then he becomes an ordinary man again, imperfect, flawed, someone to rage against and forgive, someone to grieve for. Then he becomes simply my father. But it never sticks. Philip Guston was more than my father. That was always the problem, that he was more. There's a photograph of him at 10 or 11 years old that stays with me. The resourceful child of poor Russian immigrants. The young Philip is standing behind the scruffy house plants on someone's front porch. His cap is at a rakish tilt. His pose is confident. Arms crossed, he stares straight out at me, and his eyes are wise, ageless, defiant, as if he realizes already that he is made for something else. My father was brilliant and knew it, and I was not, and knew that too. Each of us was burdened in different ways by this knowledge, he by the responsibilities of his gifts, I by a sense of my own relative unimportance. None of that matters. None of that matters, I now understand. It's only a yardstick best brought over one's knee and broken. Praise and blame like mean nothing. Wait, that's not how it says. Praise and blame alike mean nothing, as Virginia Woolf once wrote. Delightful as the pastime of measuring may be, it is the most futile of occupations. And excellence is only one part given, I finally realize, and two parts, at least some other quality of mind, some crazy driven insistence on getting it right, on shunning the glib and easy reach, on letting the line down through the surface glimmer, past the lotus blossoms and bait fish in common view, into that murky place, into obscurity, and once there, waiting, no, not patiently, but waiting for the deeper tug of truth. Surely what Goethe meant by love was more than selfless devotion or simple encouragement, more than the setting aside of one's own ambitions, that gracious and infinitely sad accommodation made by my mother. There is a love that reaches past these things, but there is, there are no words for it that don't sound mawkish 
or high-handed, or at least none that I, in my embarrassment, can find. It is a love of what is godlike in us, of creation, of creation's deep source, a love of art, if you will. Names do not matter. In some very few, it seems this quality is more expo- exposed, more pure. They cannot help who they are, and what they give is given to the whole world, not only to their families. Though we may love them, we can never really claim them. They are not ours to claim. What I know now, after these seven years since Philip's death, is this. In my life, I have worshipped, hated, and loved my father. I have run from him, and I have run toward him. I have tried desperately to attract his attention. I have tried to ignore him. In the end, none of this matters. He will always be with me. For me and for those who knew Philip Guston, two things remain. His art and the memory of his passion for it, a commitment as absolute as he, given his quite human failings, could make it. Now that he's really gone, and not in hiding, pursuing his sacred foolishness, now that it is no longer his hunger for painting that keeps me from him, but death itself, now that I can at last give up trying to get his attention, I find myself welcoming that passion at last for what it has left for him, sorry, for what it has left of him for me, for the world. People ask me what it's like to live with my father's work, as if it must be disturbing or overwhelming, as if it must interfere in some way with my own life. They seem not quite to believe I am being honest with them or my, with myself when I say that it's wonderful, but it is. I get up in the morning, pour myself a cup of coffee, walk into the living room and look at the paintings. I never tire of them. Beside the glass double doors to my father's studio is a green curtain for privacy so that no one would walk in on Philip when he was working. Though no one is here but me, I find myself instinctively pulling the curtain across the entryway Hearing the brass rings scrape along the metal rod, still protecting him, I open the curtain again, reach for the lights, and pause for a last look. The studio walls are bare, with only ladders and light fixtures leaning up against them to disturb their white expanse. Big wooden packing crates for a European exhibition now passed, built sturdy as furniture and lined with green felt are stacked like giant blocks. Stretched, primed canvases stand side by side, waiting. For a year or two, we cleaned in here, but now everything carries a fine coat of pale blonde dust. We call this room the studio, but it is no one's studio now. No longer steeped in in sadness, it is too... It is... Yeah, sorry. No longer steeped in sadness, it is it is too anonymous for that. It is no longer his. It's just a room, an empty room. It could be anyone's space with its flat lights, its silences, its dust. 
I listen to the high whine of the fluorescent lights, the beating of the silence behind. So this is what death is really like, I think. What it becomes. Beyond the pain of loss, there is finally only this sense of absence. The night quiet. And the way that memories blur, running into one another in the dilution of time. And that is the end of chapter 12 and the end of the book. I will read in to this episode the afterword written by the author. Afterword. If you prize your memories as they are, warns Annie Dillard, by all means avoid writing a memoir. Ordinarily, the meaning we extract from our memories is not fixed but dynamic, changing over time with circumstance and insight. Writing about the past, however, tends to cast perception into a particular form, having fallen, having fallen willing victim to this phenomenon, I have no striking new revelations about the past to report these nine years later. My book still stands. As an artist, Philip Guston knew that a time comes when one must be satisfied with a particular effort and willing to move on. Glancing round at a retrospective of his paintings three, work, three weeks before his death, my father had remarked, it's not so much a painting show, it's like a life, a life lived. A retrospective view in whatever medium provides a built-in closure. For me as well, for me as well, working on this memoir ended a chapter in my own history and enabled a long, a lasting reconciliation. Bringing forth our story into public view is quite another matter, however. Publishing a memoir is an open invitation for character analysis. Had I given any real thought to this beforehand, I might never have dared show my book to anyone. I came to understand in a personal way my father's lifelong ambivalence toward critics and the anguish he felt at exposing his work to the world. Because the book concerned a famous artist and was published at the time, a major retrospective of his drawings opened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, Knight Studio received a good deal of attention from art writers as well as book critics. The year was 1988, during the height of the art market boom, at a time when the inflated and overhyped New York art world had captured the media's attention. When the recent publication of sensationalized biographies of Picasso and Jackson Pollock, a controversy had been raging over the merits of psychohistory in general and what had been termed pathography in particular, was the often troubled personal life of a painter a fit subject for serious writing? Wasn't it the art itself that really mattered and not the artist's abuse of women or his alcoholism or petty rivalries with other painters? Daddy Dearest was the title of one review that appeared in the new, Critis in the new Criterion, a journal edited by my father's old arch-enemy critic Hilton Kramer. The reviewer referred to Knight Studio as, quote, a serpent's tooth of a book, end quote, written by an immature and ungrateful daughter about an artist of, un of decidedly minor gifts. 
at the opposite extreme, a feminist critic for the New York Times book review told, took me to task for justifying my father's neglect of his family in the name of art. The first reviewer found little but petty rancor in my book. The second saw too much adulation, adulation too little anger. It didn't take me long to realize that both the praise and condemnation revealed more about the temper temperament and bias of the reviewers than they did about what I'd written. The publication of Night Studio exposed me to other unforeseen changes. Not only did it serve as an eviction notice from the hiding place I'd long occupied in the shadow of a great artist and problematic father, thrusting me out into the arena of my own creative predicaments, but it also offered me a newly legitimate relation to my father's work. No longer the lost little girl at gallery openings, I'd settled easily into my role as one of the small troop of loyal representatives of my father's legacy, which has expanded in the United States and abroad over these intervening years. There have been major, many major exhibitions, most of which I have tried to attend. I followed the two retrospectives of drawings to their venues in Europe and had the pleasure of escorting the Queen of Spain through a retrospective of paintings in the Madrid Museum bearing her name. Like his students, I still appreciate my father as a model of creative integrity, a sensitive indicator of the costs and risks of making art. He understood that the paradoxical transcendence he prized so much could derive only from an honest expression of the particulars of his own flawed life. In my writing room, my studio, I, kept, I keep one of his pure drawings from 1966, a single brushed line quivering with passion and simplicity to remind me of this truth. The exed, exed, <laughs> I mess up on this word, exigencies, exigencies, <laughs> the exigencies of working on a family memoir had brought my mother and me into conflict at first and later into an intimacy we hadn't known before. She, who had struggled to find memories and words following her stroke in 1977, seemed gratified that her daughter had managed to articulate so much of her life with Philip. Often, she would show me a page or two of her journals of their lives together, which she still was transcribing on her ancient Remington typewriter from the little lined spiral-bound notebooks she carried in her purse. In the spring of 1989, still writing the uneasy waves of public exposure, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. My mother, having examined her breast for the first time in years when I had my surgery, found a small lump too. Her cancer required only minor treatment. I was less fortunate, but that is another story, one that led to my second memoir, Examining Myself, One Woman's Story of Breast Cancer Treatment and Recovery, published by Faber and Faber in 1993. Though my mother died in 1992 at 83 of congestive heart failure, her last years were good ones. I believe, and her death was neither painful nor prolonged. Tom and I were there. Tom and I were with her until the end. 
In our New York apartment, and especially at the house in Woodstock, which Tom and I have made our weekend and summer home, my father's work still surrounds and sustains me. My mother's collections of stones, shells, and fossils are, all, are in evidence, and we have brought out a, new, a few of her paintings, something she would never have permitted. When people visit, as they still sometimes do, to see where Gustin lived and worked, what they find is an amalgam of my parents' lives and our own. While organizing my mother's memorial service, I came across a handwritten list of her work in a desk drawer comprising some 80 poems, short plays, and prose pieces. Eager as I had been, eager as I had long been to have her work more widely known, and frustrated by her reticence, I was thrilled and relieved to see this proof of her own intention to gather her life's work together. I took her list as permission to do what she herself had never allowed. I arranged these writings in the sequence she had chosen, and with the help of my father's poet friends Clark Coolidge and William Corbett, and and publisher Geoffrey Young of the Figures Press edited a collection entitled Alone with the Mom sorry Alone with the Moon Selected Writings of Musa McKim Although her writing was known and respected by a number of my parents poet friends my mother had rarely published it was not until after her death that I made the delightful discovery that I was not the only one who had been waiting for an opportunity to let her light shine. Bill Corbett wrote amusingly of pestering my mother to overcome her stony refusal to publish in his poetry magazine, Fire Exit. There was an air of fragility and vulnerability about Musa McKim that made her friends want to be protective of her, said poet Stanley Kunitz. She did not disclose with she did not disclose with what fierce and undeceived attentiveness she watched from day to day the human comedy faithfully recording her bittersweet perceptions in the past 2 years alone with the moon has traveled with an exhibition entitled Philip Guston's poem pictures which details his collaborations with several poets my mother among them. There have been readings. Her work is finding its audience at last. I like to think that she has joined him, achieving in this post... Oh, wait. I like to think that she has joined him, achieving in this posthumous work a new and subtle balance with my father's powerful creative energies. Their stones in the artist's cemetery in Woodstock are part of the landscape now. The, bron- the bronze plaque that bears my father's signature has earned its patina. Beside it, my mother's modestly engraved blue stone slab has a little lichen growing on it, just as she would have wished. Musa Meyer, August of 1996, New York City. And then the last part of the book is a bunch of notes from her writing in each chapter. Sources and things that she used. It's quite a book. Appreciate you listening to my reading this book out loud. I have gained 
a lot of insight and a lot of reflective time on my own process and actually have a path forward, if you will, of what I would like to do for my own process as a painter. And that is the end of Night Studio, a memoir of Philip Guston, written by Musa Mare. Thank you.